What was once this kind of stronghold in the Black Sea is now almost turning into a liability. So Ukraine is clearly showing that the Russian fleet is not as invincible as many, and surely the Russians, have thought. It puts Russia in a difficult situation. It's kind of embarrassing for them at this point. The whole way Ukraine's waged this war in the Black Sea has been asymmetric, but incredibly successful. Just another part of this whole David and Goliath story, really. Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Cuban Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina, and today I'm joined by my colleague Francis Farrell to discuss Ukraine's surprising successes in the Black Sea and what they mean for the country's overall war effort. Francis, welcome. Good to be back. Before we go on, I'll just remind you guys to please make sure to subscribe to The Cuban Independent wherever you're listening to the show, whether that's on YouTube or on audio platforms, leave reviews, comments, like our content. It takes you just a few seconds, but goes a really long way for us because it helps the platforms promote our videos and our podcasts and more people will learn about the war in Ukraine. So, Francis, it's becoming clear for a few weeks now that the situation at the front line in Ukraine is uh, pretty bleak. The Russian assaults around Avdiivka um, are not very successful, but are still very costly. The Ukrainian counteroffensive basically died down with disappointing results. Um, but there is still one part of the war that I feel like doesn't get as much coverage as it perhaps should, and that's the Black Sea. Um, because despite basically not having a functioning navy, Ukraine actually managed to deny Russia its superiority at the sea. Um, so before we explain how Ukraine actually has been doing that, can you just tell us about the Ukrainian and Russian navies from back at the start of the war? What capabilities did each country have? To be honest, balancing up the Ukrainian navy and the Russian Black Sea fleet, even before the full-scale invasion, it was a pretty um, unequal playing field, to say the mm -hmm. least. Like On the Russian side, you have the Black Sea fleet, which is has always been since Soviet times, the one of the pride and joys of the Soviet military, of the Russian military. A lot of Russian military mythology comes around the Black Sea Fleet, around Crimea. And so they've always been based in Sevastopol. They had a lease on the base before it was annexed in 2014. And since then, they've still just been a, an incredibly strong Navy. So they, well, they used to have their flagship missile cruiser Moskva. They had lots of landing ships. They had lots of uh, several submarines, I think seven in total. We don't know how many of them are fully uh, operational. And so just, you know, uh, corvettes, mis small missile boats, patrol boats. I'm not a naval expert, but it was a proper big fleet. Whereas the Ukrainian fleet is a kind of a sad story. It's, it's just basically an institution that has been financially bullied and then physically bullied through its short history to the point where, as you said, it, it's hardly even possible to call it a navy at this point. So, you know, they had a decent legacy fleet that was handed over from them, uh, from the Soviet Union, but a lot of those ships were decommissioned or sold in the 90s. And then a lot of a lot of their ships were taken already in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea, where a lot of Ukrainian ships were also uh, stationed. So if we take the beginning of the full-scale invasion, Ukraine had a frigate, the Hetman Sahaidachny, which was the flagship of the Ukrainian Navy. But 
they were forced to scuttle it. They were forced to sink their own flagship in the first few days of the full-scale invasion. Why? Well, it was clear that Russia had total naval power. So if that ship wasn't going to be destroyed, it was very possible at the time that they could capture it. Um, it was in a, mm-hmm. in a shipyard in Mykolaiv, so not too far from, from the sea, but that was right when Russia was coming around Mykolaiv really quickly and they could have taken it, like they took Kherson. So um, Ukraine was in the process of getting new ships from Western countries, from NATO countries. Uh, they're two um, completely purpose-built uh, from scratch uh, ships in Turkey. One of them was already finished and one of them uh, is still under construction. I was actually at a conference just last week with. Uh, people involved in kind of the technology that went on those ships. But he was saying that those ships, they can't do anything except go on small missions around Turkish territorial waters, because again, Russia has that complete domination in the Black Sea, unfortunately. So clearly Russia has had the upper hand here for years, but nevertheless, when the full-scale invasion began, Russia has suffered some pretty serious losses, including, as I've already mentioned, its flagship Moskva but also several other ships and boats. So what happens? How has Ukraine managed to do that, given such a huge disparity in capabilities? Yeah, so the sinking of Moskva, I mean, it was obviously quite, it was very early in the war. It was in the first couple of months, basically. And a lot of time passed afterwards when not much happened. But it was a little taster of the fact that, no, that Russia can't take that superiority for granted. And so that was a huge success story. Obviously, Ukraine using two of its homemade uh, Neptune anti-ship missiles to sink the Russian flagship. And then you had the Russians saying, oh, it caught fire and, and sank in bad weather. Oh, I, so at a point, they were saying that it wasn't sinking. Um, it was just partially underwater. <laughs> Whatever that means. Of course, yeah. Um, But, you know, that was a kind... And it's also about the kind of reality of this kind of war where we know that missiles and like long-range strike capability is so important. And if you have a navy of huge expensive ships that travel slowly and they need to be docked somewhere, you know, uh, it's it's possible that they're just not really going to have a place in this in this war. And so there were a few months of not much happening after the Moskva. I think they learned their lesson very quickly that there was a certain distance that they just couldn't come to the Ukrainian-controlled shore because they had Neptune, they had Harpoon anti-ship missiles. So they went back to Sevastopol mostly. And then the next big development we saw was in October last year, just exactly almost uh, a year ago, where we saw the first use of these uh, Ukrainian new marine drones. So like these anti-ship drones, they're like about as long as a car and they can carry a lot of um, explosives. And Ukraine, we're not sure exact damage that was done, but Ukraine used a lot of them. They used aerial drones together um, to to target the fleet in Sevastopol. And then you could already tell that, okay, something's changing here. The whole idea of what uh, a naval contest is changing and the whole point, the whole basically legitimacy of the Russian Black Sea fleet is now seriously under question. Um, And already back then they started to, you know, they were clearly scared. They were upgrading a lot of their defense capabilities against these drones. They were thinking of new solutions. And things have gotten even more interesting recently as Ukraine continues to not only uh, develop its capability with these unmanned drones, uh, drone ships, 
but also with uh, long-range missile capabilities. And so that's when things get start to get really interesting for the Russian Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol because they're, they're in trouble. So, I mean, we've talked about these strikes on Crimea first. Obviously, they're very complex operations and uh, air defense needs to be knocked out or at least distracted. Um, and they're distracted on the water as well. So coordinated uh, sea drones, air drones, long-range missiles, perhaps repurposed old uh, Soviet missiles, the S-200, we know they've been used, anti-radar missiles, and then, of course, the long-range uh, Storm Shadow or Scalp uh, missiles that Ukraine got from the UK and France. And uh I guess the most spectacular almost episode there was in September when uh, Ukraine hit a dry dock in Sevastopol with storm shadows and knocked out not only a landing ship, but a submarine, a Russian submarine in its dry dock was was destroyed by a country which didn't really have a navy. So that we can tell now that you know the balance is really starting to shift and, and the Russian Black Sea Fleet is starting to even lose its its purpose, its legitimacy. So Ukraine is clearly showing that the Russian fleet is not as invincible as many, and surely the Russians, have thought. Uh, And I mean, I guess one of the most dramatic episodes and proofs of that is also the attack on the Russian fleet headquarters in Sevastopol just a few months ago. How big of a deal was this, operationally speaking, for the Russian fleet? Well, uh, as far as we know, it was like 34, I think, estimated officers were, were killed, uh, including allegedly the commander of the Black Sea Fleet. But then the commander showed up in a video that Russia showed. So we don't know for sure if this commander, Admiral Sokolov, is dead or not. Um, obviously, again, that's, that's a blow. Like these commanders, these officers, losing them is a blow. But again, this is for the Black Sea Fleet, which is kind of struggling to have too much of a role here. Except, of course, it's worth mentioning that these, some of these ships and submarines are uh, the launches of caliber cruise missiles. So the missiles that attack Ukrainian energy infrastructure, port infrastructure, other targets, uh, some of them are used against Ukrainian land targets from the from the sea. So that's important. But so knocking out the, the ships that can launch those missiles is important and knocking out the officers in the Black Sea Fleet obviously has an effect. But in general, this is just a small part of a larger picture, right? We can see where this is all going. That Sevastopol, this great pride of, of, of Russian military history, of Russian kind of Crimea mythology, it's now becoming untenable uh, for the Russian Navy. And we see that very simply through the satellite images of how Russia's slowly withdrawing their, the bulk of their fleet. So, of course, here there are no large announcements about how oh, we're abandoning Sevastopol, guys. <laughs> Um, see you later. No, uh, we see this in from satellites. We see that the ships that were here are no longer here, and then they show up somewhere else. So some of them were moved to eastern Crimea, further away from Ukrainian-controlled territory. Uh, most of them were moved to Novorossiysk, which is a Russian port city on like the Russian mainland in the Black Sea. Although it's worth mentioning that Ukraine actually managed to even attack Novorossiysk, so they, they really? with these uh, maritime drones, these unmanned sea vehicles. So they, it's like a distance of over six hundred kilometers, basically from one end of the Black Sea to the other. Um, so you can see it puts Russia in a difficult situation. It's kind of embarrassing for them at this point. Um, yeah, that's an understatement. But now 
just in October, just uh, uh, a few weeks ago, they even announced that they're going to build and open a completely new uh, naval base in Abkhazia. So in this like unrecognized occupied state in Georgia. So not looking good for the Black Sea fleet. So let's switch gears for a little bit and turn to the topic of grain exports, which is another part of this Black Sea story. So after Russia killed the Black Sea Green Initiative, which was essentially this deal uh, which allowed for the safe export of Ukrainian grain into um, Turkey, Ukraine basically continued um, the exports anyway, but through a different route. So take us inside that logic. How is Ukraine managing to continue its exports despite the Russian threats? So when Russia withdrew from the Black Sea Grain Initiative in summer this year, it was a pretty big deal because immediately they said, you know, even any commercial grain ship could be a military target. And of course, we're dealing with private companies here, shipping companies, grain companies, and, you know, they, they listen to that. And, and there's a big worry with insurance. And so the quite stable, regular traffic of grain ships did at first stop. Almost completely. Although it's worth remembering that Ukraine has really developed their infrastructure to ship grain out of the Danube River through the few ports they have there. But apart from that, yeah, it stopped at first and there was a temporary corridor organized for the ships that were stuck in the Ukrainian ports around Odessa. And around that time, there were all these port attacks as well. So things were looking pretty grim. But but then um, Ukraine slowly just they just started going again and they chose a new route where it doesn't go straight through the Black Sea like it used to, according to the deal, but it hugs the coast very closely and it very quickly goes into NATO waters. So, of course, you can't attack anything there. And Ukraine has also been helping to cover some of the insurance premiums for these, tri- for these companies to actually operate on this route. But a big part of that whole calculation, whether it's for Ukraine or for the companies, is that they know that Russia can't really threaten these ships anymore. They know that if they stay close to the coastline and um, you know, Russia doesn't launch huge missiles from, from close to Crimea at these commercial ships, within, which they're not going to do. Otherwise, like again, the Russian ships, they do not come close to the coast. They're not really a threat. They can't enact some kind of physical blockade anymore. Although it's still little compared to the amount of grain that was flowing through these ports when the grain deal was still working, it's growing significantly. And and soon maybe we could even see a paradigm where grain and shipping starts to flow through these ports almost as they did during the actual grain deal. And so it's like Russia threw a tantrum and left this grain deal only to be showed that like, oh, we don't actually need you anymore. So again, uh, a symbolic victory, I would say. So thanks to its creativity and cool new drones and long range missiles, Ukraine managed to keep the flow of the grain export going, albeit at small rates relatively to what it was. Um, And that's another success, as you've said. But let's zoom out a little bit. So how does all of this, um, all of these successes, how do they fit into Ukraine's campaign in Crimea? Well, of course, there's no front line in Crimea. Uh, So there are a lot of Russian, Russian military targets. So this is, again, this is a really interesting part of the war in the sense that it's about these long range capabilities and and it's about what what effects it can have on the war in general. Um, Of course, yeah, there's still no question of some kind of Ukrainian landing on Crimea that could take territory, although 
there has been a few stories really sensational in the last few months of small-scale raids on the coast of Crimea by Ukrainian military intelligence units. Uh, they've planted flags, they've uh, destroyed uh, Russian targets there, including some air defense. So this is all part of basically the degradation of Russia's confident place in this, what they used to think was, I guess, this geopolitical, geographical stronghold in the middle of the Black Sea, like this physical peninsula. But now it's turning almost, of course, there's still airfields and there are still lots of important logistics routes uh, going across the bridge into the other occupied parts of southern Ukraine. Um, although Ukraine is targeting them more and more as well. We talked with Igor about uh, how Ukraine's targeting air defense. Especially if Ukraine can keep innovating with their air drones and their sea drones, and they can keep knocking out Russian air defense. What was once this kind of stronghold in the Black Sea is now almost turning into a liability because, for example, the Black Sea fleet, it, you can't really just evade missiles unless you move the whole fleet out to Abkhazia or something like that. So uh, Crimea is a very interesting thing to watch because unlike the front line, which is all about quantity and artillery and men and drones and meter going back and forth here, the kind of Crimean theater is a very asymmetric theater. And the whole way Ukraine's waged this war in the Black Sea has been asymmetric, but incredibly successful. Just another part of this whole David and Goliath story, really. And place that into the overall context of the Ukrainian broader war effort. How does that fit into it? Yeah, so here I, I do want to take a step back and, and inject a bit of uh, clarity, I guess, and honesty into this conversation, because when we saw that the counteroffensive is probably drawing towards its close and, and hasn't really done a lot in terms of territory gained, there were some people who started commentating, maybe even articles were written, I think, about how well, uh, that's only a part of the counteroffensive. And, you know, Ukraine's real counteroffensive success could be where you didn't expect it in the Black Sea, which uh, I, I don't think that's a very honest uh, portrayal of things because the bulk of this war is a land war. It's on the front lines, it's in the trenches, it's with the artillery, the drones, the tanks, and uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And you know, the future of Ukraine in many ways does depend on what goes on in that in that land war. And it's it's not really correct to say, well, they didn't make it far on the front line, but they started hitting a bunch of cool things in Crimea. So counteroffensive success? Not really. Um, but of course, it, it is interesting. There are a lot there are these airfields, you know, complete fire control with long range missiles over Crimea would be a big deal in this war. Zelensky has said that that's the aim. Of course, it would be a lot more easier if Ukraine was actually re receiving the missiles that we know that the US and Germany have, the longer range attackums and the Taurus missiles that they could actually hit these things with. But it does make the war interesting because, again, Crimea is a sitting target. And then we go back to discussions about the bridge as well. And I think that's where Crimea and the Black Sea become very interesting because in the context where things are more and more static on the front line and it's more and more difficult for either side to move forward, Crimea is this kind of political hot button that if Ukraine can keep hitting successfully, potentially more and more successfully, 
it kind of puts pressure on Russia from another direction. It, uh, we know how much Putin cares about Crimea. We know how he sees it as his his kind of jewel, initial jewel, his pearl, his his crowning achievement of his presidency before he decided to take the rest of Ukraine as well. And and he built this incredible bridge in record time, connecting it to, to Mother Russia. And and that bridge, it's just sitting there. You can't move it away. You can't move the bridge to Abkhazia. It can be hit if if the defenses around it uh, can be degraded enough. And and then you have the question of all the Russians who've moved to Crimea. Suddenly they see that this Russian paradise that they choose to to move into is now a war zone. Like that's that's where things start getting interesting. And I won't go into long term speculation about um where that war could go it's all connected to what else is happening on the front line but um yeah a little bit of a an interesting kind of loose cannon asymmetrical element to the war that we will still keep a close eye on we're now going to be moving to the community question of this episode and i'll encourage you guys to please go to the slash membership to donate to the independent either once or join our community become members of our community on a monthly basis for as little as five dollars a month you get really cool perks of course our favorite perk is that you get to send us in questions before every single episode of the podcast and this time, the question that we're going to be answering is, uh, does NATO have drones and or submarines and other ships in the Black Sea monitoring the Russian fleet? Well, yeah. So a lot of the countries on the Black Sea are NATO member states. So you have right next to Ukraine, you have Romania, you have Bulgaria, they have their navies. And then you have obviously the whole southern coast is Turkey, uh, which has a considerable navy. U.S. ships haven't really decided to come into the Black Sea, I think, during during the full-scale war. You know, we know that Washington is concerned about, about aviation and so on. When, but when it comes to monitoring uh, the Russian fleet, Russian activities, of course, we have satellites now. And I, you know, I, I'm not an expert enough to get super deep into this, but we have seen constantly on public open source flight data that the U.S. and other NATO countries are very often patrolling the Black Sea in the air with uh, kind of AWACS or other reconnaissance kind of um, radar planes. So from the air, basically. Well, Francis, thank you so much. As always, it was very interesting to listen to. Always a pleasure. Also this week, Russia appears to have withdrawn its troops from Belarus, Ukraine State Border Guard Service said. According to the service's spokesman, there are still some members of the Russian armed forces remaining in Belarus, but these are predominantly military personnel who service the Russian equipment that's left in the country. A report released by the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights found that all 59 people killed in Russia's missile attack on the village of Horza in Kharkiv Oblast were indeed civilians. And Ukraine's general staff reported Russian troops making unsuccessful attempts to regain lost positions near the towns of Robotene in Zaporizhia Oblast and Andreevka in Donetsk Oblast. Ukrainian forces repelled the attacks, the military said. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to this show. Uh, donate to The Kim Independent by going to kimindependent.com membership and follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and X. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. 